And turn with me to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. And we'll be looking at verse 18 tonight. Verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. The title of this lesson tonight is Our Need for Correction. Now here, again, is another common theme that we find in Proverbs, this theme of correction. And we've addressed it before. Now this verse gives us the outcomes that we can expect from both sides of the issue. Those who reject or disdain correction will get shame, while those who regard it will be honored. And so also, as we consider this, we'll note the wisdom of humility and the folly of pride once again as well. And um, notice that this verse doesn't mention either one of those. However, it's as clear as it can be that the real issue behind both of these behaviors in this verse is the issue of humility and pride. Uh, For it's pride that keeps a person from listening to instruction and correction, and it's humility that opens the door to receive these things. The need for correction and instruction is universal among men. It's important for us to remember that we never, ever grow old enough to get beyond the need for correction. Uh, There's no amount of education that can rid us of that need. You know, we could read and memorize every book ever written. Uh, We could study and learn for a thousand years and still not come close to perfection. We can rise to a, a high enough station in life that we can immunize ourselves from the need for correction, or at least in our own minds. The mightiest emperor, the the greatest general, and the best doctor, and the most successful businessmen never get to the point where they don't need correction and instruction, but oftentimes they act like that in pride. Their pride lifts them up from their success. Uh, Neither does age transport us into perfection. Uh, But if if an old man has learned anything in life, he's learned this, that he knows very little indeed, and that he is far from perfect. Uh, yet all these kinds of people that I mentioned and more, you know, the mighty, the educated, the learned, uh, the successful, the aged, all of these are very prone to fall into the trap of thinking themselves beyond the need for correction. You know, we can be thankful that Hitler was prone to this error. Hitler, one of the reasons he lost the war is because he wouldn't listen to his generals. He was headstrong. He wouldn't listen to them. He he demanded his own way, uh, and uh, because he got his own way, he also he also got uh, got defeat. And we can be thankful for that uh, for that in him. If he had listened to his generals, we would have had an awful lot harder time uh, beating him. Um, but. Uh, 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 how often have you had to deal with, uh, you know, a professional or a doctor whose mind was closed to, closed to further instruction? How often have, has, have you run into an arrogant businessman that refuses to listen to counsel? Um, wealth and education and power, they tend to feed a person's pride and so they think they can't be, can't be corrected or don't need to be corrected by others. But the the other category of persons that are very prone to this problem are the young. Not the very young, 
because very young children are likely to do do what they're told and to uh, go wherever they're led by their parents. But I think especially of teenagers and uh, older young people, especially uh, going on into uh, from teenage their teenage years into their mid twenties, uh, young adulthood, uh, these are prone to fall into this mode of thinking that they have all the answers. Now, I knew that I was like that when I was that age. I was young and arrogant, and um, I was uh, I was so sure of myself, so full of myself. And I remember those days. Uh, uh, what a fool I was as I look back. Uh, now, I'm very thankful in this church that we have a, a whole bunch of young people nowadays that don't fit that. I mean, they listen to correction. They listen to instruction, and they're, they, and they're eager for it. And so uh, I, it's, it's a rare thing. I tell people what a blessing we have in our church. We have so many young people that uh, even those that aren't, aren't necessarily converted have respect for older people and they listen to us when we talk and that's that's a great thing but uh, but I do have a warning even for you young people that fit into that category remember the inclination of your fallen hearts is to be proud it is an inclination especially in young people to uh, in your fallen nature to think that uh, you have the answers and uh, and and for pride to creep in and spoil things well keep in mind that knowing things doesn't make you wise. That's one of the problems of this, of this generation. You know, there's so many of the young people in our generation, knowledge is right at their fingertips with the Internet and Google and uh, uh, Siri and Alexa and all of them. Uh, you, can, you can get so much information, and sometimes it makes them have the idea that that translates into wisdom. And it doesn't. Information does not translate into wisdom. First. Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, has a tendency towards pride. It said wisdom or love edifies. Uh, the problem, of course, isn't knowledge itself. Uh, who would ever say that knowledge is bad? But the problem is our wicked and wretched and sinful natures that esteem ourselves superior to others because we think we have more knowledge than they do. You're not better, you're not wiser, you're not superior to others because you read more books or because you've seen more things or you've gone to more places than others have gone. Uh, some of the biggest fools I've ever met in my life have been either PhDs or those in process of getting a PhD. Uh, they won't be corrected by somebody that that they esteem as being less knowledgeable than they. I'm not saying this about all PhDs. I'm just saying I've known a couple, you know. And uh, and this trait didn't lend to their honor either, that they wouldn't listen to correction. Now, men, especially you men, i got a test for you here to test you about your pride. <clears throat> How difficult is it for you to apologize to your wife when you know you've been wrong? You don't have to answer me. Please don't answer me. You know, I, I thought of that illustration because I was thinking about this whole principle here, and I was thinking, uh, I was saying, I remembered a time when when I when I knew that I had sinned against my wife, and uh, uh, I knew that I I needed to apologize, and it was so difficult. I was so surprised. I was I really I was shocked. I thought, Al, what's the matter with you? You know, you teach this stuff. You know. But 
I had to humble myself in front of my wife and tell her I was wrong. And it was so difficult. And I thought, there's only one answer to that, and that is my sinful, wretched pride. That is the only thing that made it hard. It wasn't hard to tell that I'd done wrong. It wasn't hard to know what I needed to do. But to bring myself to do it, it took all the energy in my body to do that. And so, I, you know, those kind of little things kind of tend to humble you. You know, you think, I don't have not progressed as far in grace as I thought I had, you know. But I just say that's a test, man. How hard is it for you to own up to doing wrong uh, when you have to admit it to your wife? You know, I think that's, uh, I think that's uh, for me at least, that's a litmus test. Uh, James 5.16, confess your, your trespasses to one another. Well, there was a situation where I needed to confess my trespass to my wife. And by the way, this uh, same principle applies to you parents, all of, all of you parents. Uh, remember this in regards to your children. I've known parents that were too proud to ever admit that they were wrong in front of their children. I don't know if you've known parents like that, but I have. But children see things, and they have a mind of their own. And even if they don't catch on while they're very young, they're likely to remember a wrong done to them when they're older. But they'll uh, they'll remember you favorably if they also remember that you admitted that you were wrong and you humbled yourself. Children are quick to forgive. And they're glad to forgive their parents. And, and it really raises their esteem of their parents in the eyes of the children when the parents are humble enough to come to them and say, no, I was wrong, right? I, I shouldn't have disciplined you over this or, or whatever the thing was. You know, parents, uh, it can be a difficult thing for a parent to humble himself before his children because, after all, aren't we supposed to be the ones, right? We're supposed to be the ones that they look to. But if we give them the impression that we're, we think that we're omniscient or we think that we're better and, and that we never make a mistake, then we're sending a wrong message to our children. And they need to see in us, because they're going to see us be wrong. There's no way they can live and grow up in the same house as you and not catch you wrong sometimes. So when you confess to them, you know, I was wrong about what I did or what I said or what I, you know, this action I took or this thing I didn't do or whatever it was, and you admit that to your children, then they see that you're human. They see your struggle as a Christian. They see the reality of life, and that's better for them. They need to see that, uh, and they need to see that you uh, you're humble. Um, so this is a, a perfect example of the passage Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But really, that kind of test is exactly what we have here in this proverb. To the extent that we're teachable, to the extent that we're open to correction and to further. Uh, further instruction, to that extent, we've won the battle against pride in our lives. Uh, listen to David, Psalm 141.5. He says this, he said, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be an excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. And we know that David lived like this, didn't he? Uh, remember when, when uh, uh, Nathan came to him to confront him over his sin? And uh, remember, he told the story, and and uh, David was all livid about this man who had stolen his neighbor's sheep, and was so selfish and so uh, so uh, thoughtless against his neighbor, and uh, so wicked. And he pronounced sentence upon this wicked man, pronounced 
pronounced him guilty. Said, said, uh, you know, I'll, you know, this man will will not live. And Nathan, them, them words that sunk deep into David's soul. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. And uh, and so, but David, as soon as he, as soon as he heard that, and he realized, he put two and two together, and he put the parable together to what he had done. And uh, he said, I have sinned. Immediately, he said, I have sinned. But that was a great thing, because David was a very powerful king, and powerful um, uh, ancient uh, kings in the in the Orient weren't uh, didn't tend to take well to being rebuked or reproved. But David listened to that, and I think the best example is is his when he listened to Abigail. And I read that story to you uh, several weeks ago or a month or so ago about you know when Abigail confronted him, and David was on the way to destroy. Uh, Abigail's husband, and and he had already said that he was he wasn't going to leave one male servant alive among them. And he was going to go there and wipe them all out. And Abigail met him on the road and reasoned with him. Remember, she humbled herself and she reasoned with him and she explained some things to him and and just entreated him. And David listened to her. He listened to this humble woman as she humbled herself, and that was much to David's credit. But we see this pattern throughout his life. Uh, I even wicked Joab one time and the story, a story of Absalom. And I, this one stands out to me. And that is, I'm going to read it to you in Second Samuel 9, 19, 1 through 8. Um, this is after the, uh, the conquest over Absalom and the uh, forces the, that were in rebellion against him, that were trying to dethrone him. And, and, uh, and Absalom was, of course, trying to overthrow his father. Remember, they had the battle. And in the battle, of course, Absalom was killed. And, uh, uh, and 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 David was brokenhearted over the death of his son, and and uh, he 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 went on weeping and mourning, and he he kept saying, "Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee," you know, although, you know, and he was really mourning him very very profusely. It says that Joab was told, "Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom." So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. That's a pretty stinging rebuke, don't you think? Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that'll be worse for you than all the evil that's befallen you from your youth until now. And the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, there's the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel uh, had fled to his tent. You just see the humility of this man. And he knew, Joab was, Joab was not a good man. David knew he was a wicked man, and he actually tried to replace him twice, and Joab murdered the guys that David intended to replace him with both times. And so he wasn't, Joab wasn't David's favorite, but Joab had a, a good rebuke for him, and David listened to it. And, uh, 
and I just think he's a great example. That's you know I I think his leadership skills were uh, were something to be emulated by by business leaders today and all political leaders as well. David's greatest strength as a leader was the fact that he could be corrected by his subjects. Do you want to be a leader? Um, you know whether it's in business or in politics or in the church or in your home. How well do you listen to correction? How well do you take correction from others? Uh, can you receive instruction from those that have either a lower station in life than you or have less knowledge than you? And I think that's a big key. People that we perceive have, have less knowledge than us or are in a lower station of life. Can we receive instruction and correction from them? David could, and uh, and I think that's a very... A very important uh, uh, trait for any any leader. Uh, if you can't do that, then you're not fit to lead others. Now I have to qualify that. It doesn't mean that a leader should be wishy-washy and just continue, you know, continually be a uh, a pushover for people. But that's not what we're talking about. With any of those examples I give you from David, David was clearly wrong in all of those things, and he needed to be corrected, and he and he listened to correction. Uh, but even when you receive bad instruction. Or bad correction, correction that isn't right. How do you respond? You know, sometimes a leader needs to be firm and gracious when he says no. Now, we've been applying this uh, as to how we receive instruction from men. And this is where we see this principle worked out in our lives chiefly. But undergirding all this, we need to always keep in mind the submission that we need to render to the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Very familiar passage to all of you, I know. Now, three out of those four things mentioned here are mentioned in our verse in Proverbs. Reproof, correction, and instruction. And uh, uh, never in the life of even the most consecrated and experienced Christian, do we get to a place where we no longer need those things? Uh, and it's a, it's a constant, there's a constant pull from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, uh, there's a constant pull away from godliness and away from righteousness. And, um, and we experience that every week. I was just talking to, to one of you here earlier before the service, talking about the struggle of the week, having to be involved in Christian warfare and, and doing battle with sin in our lives. And um, and so uh, uh, this is a warfare that we're involved in every day of our lives. And, and we're constantly in danger of falling. And we must never lose sight of this fact. And when we let our guard down, we're prone to falling. Let him, him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, I have a, a, a couple of passages I want us to look at. Uh, first of all, turn to First Peter chapter five. I'm just going to say a few things about this passage, but uh, but I have uh, I've actually prepared a, a complete sermon on this, and I'm, I plan on bringing uh, within the next a few weeks or a month. But First Peter chapter five, verses eight and nine: Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. In this Christian warfare, 
the, the, one of the best assets we have is humility and the fear of God. And he talks about that in the early part of the chapter. He's, he, he, he gives instruction to his fellow elders. He, he tells them not to be lords over God's flock, but to be examples to the flock. And, and then, he, then he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And, and then he's, he makes this statement in, in verse 5, quoting the Old Testament, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he talks about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. And so, uh, and so we have this instruction from him, and um, uh, about on humility, and then he starts talking about our our battle with the devil, and so uh, we have a far greater uh, chance in this fight with the with the with the world, the flesh, and the devil if we approach the Christian warfare with a humble attitude, that in a teachable attitude, and. Uh, and so uh, this is where some fall. And uh, I'm not going to say too much more about that, but Peter's calling us to watchfulness, isn't he? Watchfulness. And the chief watchfulness, really, that we're called to do is watchfulness over ourselves. And so I want us to turn back then to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. And just to review a few things that we, that we went over back when we studied this passage. Chapter 4, verse 23 where it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And then, of course, we have an example of what practical instruction the Word of God is to us. Uh, uh, this, this here is, is given in, in the, rest of the, uh, the rest of the verses that follow this. He's, he's gotten, he, he puts flesh on this whole thing of... of uh, uh, keeping our heart with all diligence. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Uh, see what he's doing there. He's putting off dishonesty, uh, watching watching our speech, making sure we're honest. And then in verse 25, he says, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Uh, he's talking about being remaining focused on staying on the narrow way, not being distracted by the world. There are so many things to distract us, aren't there? Uh, distract us from our duty. But we're to serve God with a single-minded devotion. And then verse 26, where he says, Ponder the path of life and let all your ways be established. <clears throat> we need to ponder uh, the path of our feet, is what it says. It's just, it's, this is to say that we think about where we go. And how we spend our time and what company we keep. We don't just thoughtlessly go through life, but we think about what we're doing, and we let our and then and, and then our ways are established, and we make sure that the things we're involved in are those things that God approves of. And again, we're we're thoughtful, which is the which being thoughtful is of course the opposite of being careless and thoughtless. Uh, and we're to keep our heart with all diligence. Then verse 27, he says, do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. And this speaks of a determination to not be moved out of the will of God. Uh, there are temptations, as we said, on the right hand and on the, and on the left of another sort. And our aim is to stay in the very center of God's will at all times. And, re, and it says, remove your foot from evil. 
Ephesians 5.11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And so all of this flows from a, a humble watchfulness over ourselves and a distrust of ourselves. That you're not, you're not, uh, you're not having confidence that you yourself have the power to be able to fight this battle. Now, uh, all of this shows a watchfulness and a willingness to be instructed by God's word. And that's what we need in this spiritual battle. Now, I want us to consider then the warning and the promise of our text as we look back at our text in Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Poverty and shame or disgrace on the one hand and honor on the other. All, all the translations agree on this verse. In our fallenness, our thinking is that if we admit that we're wrong or if we submit to being corrected by somebody else, we're dishonoring ourselves. And that's somehow that we're less dignified or we have less authority in those situations. Uh, and it's true that it would be more honorable to not ever need correction, wouldn't it, in the first place. But see, when we admit that we need to be corrected, it is humbling for us. And no one wants to be humbled. But the fact is that nobody besides Jesus has ever lived a perfect life. And, um, and, he, and, and as I said earlier, there's no, we never get past the need for, for being corrected. If we try to take the position that we're above correction, then we really look bad in the eyes of others, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, people appreciate being listened to. And they especially appreciate humility and grace. And if you refuse to listen, um, uh, that's, that they, will not, they will not honor you in their minds, and your reputation with them will be tarnished. In other words... You'll be abased in their mind, and uh, where, 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 whereas you really want people to honor you. We, we all want people to honor us, don't we? But they're not going to honor you unless you are one that will listen to correction. But on the other hand, if you do humble yourself and you submit to being corrected or instructed, you will be honored. I, again, think of David and, and, and Abigail. What would we think of David if he ignored their advice in those two uh, those two occasions. We would think less of him, wouldn't we? It wouldn't be for David's honor if David hadn't listened to these two. Uh, his humble and his contrite repentance are an everlasting honor to the name of David. Now, what do you think of the Pharisees? Uh, remember, they, remember when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? And they wouldn't listen to him, would they? And just, just think about it. I mean, he rebuked them firmly and, and they wouldn't listen to the rebukes of the Son of God. So, what happened to them? You know, unless they repented and came to Christ later on, we know where they are. They're in hell today in everlasting shame and, and reproach because they would not listen to the rebukes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, they, uh, uh, they, they resisted them. They disdained his correction, didn't they? And it was not to their honor. So when somebody corrects you, how should, how should you regard it? Well, the first thing we should do when somebody uh, goes to correct us is, is we shouldn't rule out the possibility that you might actually need the correction, that, that they might actually be right. Because the first gut reaction that we ordinarily have when somebody goes to correct us is that we don't welcome it. We don't, we don't like it. But remember this warning in this, in this, in this uh, verse that we, you know, 
to those that disdain correction, and the promise for blessing to those that regard a rebuke. Uh, uh, these are things that we should keep in mind. If somebody comes to correct you, uh, you want to, uh, you know, you want to have that attitude that, uh, that maybe, maybe I need correction, and, and, I, and it's, it, it gets complicated. Because a lot of times when somebody goes to correct us, they are wrong about part of it. But uh, but uh, but we have to remember that they're not perfect either. The people that come to correct us, they're not perfect either. And so maybe they got part of it wrong, but maybe they got part of it right. So sometimes we need to pick out the part where they've got it right. And we need to humble ourselves over that and and let the other go by. And rather than just defend ourselves. And uh, I know that one of the things that a counselor's got to be very careful to do, and that is to not overcharge people. One of the things I've seen in Christian circles an awful lot is overcharging people. And that is uh, um, uh, rebuking them for more than what they've done. I remember one time I was in a counseling uh, situation where I had a husband and wife, and, and the husband had done something very dishonoring to his wife. It was very dishonoring that he had done. We were talking about that in the conversation. And I and I said, you couldn't have dishonored your wife worse, you know. That was an overstatement. You know, he said, he said, oh, really? He said, and then he gave me some examples of ways he could have dishonored her worse. And I said, yeah, you're right. You could have dishonored her worse. <laughs> but, but, you know, all I could get him to, con- he, he only concentrated on the fact that I was, I was charging him for, with more than what he was guilty of. And, and I couldn't get him to see and to repent of the way he had dishonored his wife. And that was, you know, I, I partially blame myself. I mean, he was awful stubborn, but, you know, I shouldn't have overstated my case. And we got to be careful about that when we go to confront others, that we don't overstate ourselves. If anything, it's better to understate things. You, do you want to say something, Mark? Yeah, you mentioned uh, Nathan, the way he rebuked Yeah. 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 Rebuke them enough, but not too much, because if you rebuke them too much or you go too far in your rebuke, their natural, like I say, our natural fallen nature is we don't respond well to rebuke anyway, even if it's totally measured and totally right. Their first gut reaction is to I'm being corrected. I'm being, you know, I'm being shown that I'm wrong and we don't we don't want to hear that. And so uh, you already have that resistance. So don't go beyond and say more than what you should or rebuke them for more, for more than what they've actually done. Like I say, if anything, um, uh, understate your case. And, and that's, that's better to do that and convince them of that much. And uh, well, anyway, that's just some a little bit extra for you. But I mean, I, I know you're not all you're not all going to be counselors, but, you know, you all have friends and you have people that. In your life, and every Christian should be uh, involved in their friends' lives. And when you're, if you have a, a Christian friend that's in some kind of a sinful behavior, you want to, you know, you have an obligation to exhort them. The Bible teaches us to exhort one another, and and so uh, uh, you know things like that can be helpful for you when you go to do that. So um, so uh, uh, we need to be re- uh, always ready to receive 
instruction or correction, but we also need to be able to give it in a humble way as well. Now, really the greatest fulfillment of this principle, though, that we have here in this verse in our text tonight is found in anybody who has been born again. Think about that. Everyone who's been born again has has had to repent before you could uh, before you could come to Christ, haven't you? Or as you're coming to Christ, you've had to repent. Everybody has to go through repentance. God gave us the grace of repentance, didn't He? We received correction, and we submitted to the demands of Christ as our Savior and our Lord when we came to Christ, didn't we? We had to lay down our lives, and we had to take up uh, His life. And think of the amazing honor that we've gotten in our lives by being corrected by God, by submitting ourselves to the gospel and, and coming under the uh, under the uh, discipleship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the ways he's honored us. First, he's forgiven our sins. And he's given us a seat at God's table. Uh, Christ honors us in this life by listening to our prayers, by giving us the Holy Spirit, by giving us wisdom when we ask for it. He honors us by upholding us in our troubles and by delivering us from our enemies and by providing for all of our needs. Uh, Do you see how God is already fulfilling this verse in your life? If you've been born again, he's already honoring you. Every Every time he hears your prayer, he's honoring you. You humbled yourself to come to Christ and now you are honored. And think of this. This is only a foretaste of the glory that is to come for us. Wait until we arrive at the celestial city. And we're granted admittance there. I mean, just glory, glory, glory. It's going to be glory beyond anything you can possibly imagine. Glorification awaits all of us in Christ. But it begins with humiliation and repentance and submission to God's instruction, God's, in, God's correction, God's re- reproofs uh, while we live here below. We have a little while here. We've got to submit to being uh, corrected. But the glory that awaits us is astounding. But also then, doesn't our text tonight explain somewhat the resistance that unbelievers have against the gospel? Think of the barrier that God needs to break down in order to save anyone. Think of that. I remember what a proud person I was before I came to Christ. And uh, uh, God had to, he had to break the back of that pride before I was willing to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I deal with a lot of proud machinists in my trade. And I don't care what trade you're in, whether you're in heating and cooling or you're in electric or you're in whatever trade you're in, you're going to find proud people that you have to deal with. And, uh, and there's, uh, there's some tricks to dealing with proud people. And, uh, and it's not easy to, to, to work with proud people, but proud, unsaved people tend to be prima donnas in their, in their work. And uh, uh, so for God to save somebody, pride must be broken in their lives. And though, of course, we know that it's never totally eradicated in any of our lives. But it needs to be broken enough that we submit to the instruction of God in the gospel and we admit that we've been on the wrong path. 
and we're willing to abandon that wrong path and turn into the narrow way of the gospel. Just think of the supernaturalness of that grace that has to do that in our lives. It is a supernatural work. This takes a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. And praise God that he does do this in many lives. And everybody that gets saved, every single person that gets saved goes through this. Um, but, but the truth is that even after we've been born again and uh, born again for many years, I've been saved now for 50 years now, the remaining sin that's in us will resist our receiving of correction and instruction. And always know that about yourself. Know that, 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 the, that the remaining corruption in you wants to resist being corrected. And even if you're a Christian. And uh, so we need to remind ourselves of the truth of this verse, that poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards rebuke will be honored. We need to, we need to keep that in mind. We need to remember it. It's, and, and, and maybe I'm talking to somebody tonight that's not a Christian. Maybe there's somebody who isn't in Christ. Is pride keeping you from the Savior? Don't let pride keep you away from eternal life. That's what happened to the Pharisees. In pride, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't, they couldn't humble their, themselves before him. And they're in hell today. Don't let pride keep you from the Savior. Pride didn't keep the Savior from the cross to redeem us. So don't let pride keep you from the cross for your, uh, for your salvation, for your redemption. And Christian, don't let pride keep you from the blessings that God has for you when you let the Word of God do the work of God in your lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.